welcome back. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Heck yeah. All right. We are going to cover a lot today because you know you and I have known each other a long time. Um, I think you can tuck into some what I believe are important topics in an effective way. And also, you're just like an honest and vulnerable person. So like, we're going to get into it. You good with that? I'm good with that. All right, man. First of all, just for the uninitiated, I, we had a, a little bit of a bio up front, but really tell us like who you are and what do you do? So just start with a small question. Thanks, Aram. Um, my title at work is, is VP of People and Culture. Mm-hmm. I work for a growing manufacturing company called Wildpack Beverage, um, which I've joined because of the enormous possibility, which I see there on so many different levels, mm-hmm. from how we're going to build a company to the mission that we're actually on as a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I am outside of that and how I've ended up in this spot today, um, I'm a small town kid from Wales who kept getting bigger and bigger goals in different areas and kept going after them which has led me to living in, uh, in, in England after Wales and down into the US, to New Zealand, to Canada. Uh, I've lived in cities, I've lived on ski resorts, uh, and throughout all of that, I've built this career which was going in one direction and then took about six different turns and, and has seen me now sitting leading a people and culture team or what would traditionally be known as, as HR. So. Um, it's been an interesting journey and one that I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes next. Okay. Uh, thank you. And it was a big question, eloquently stated. I'm going to put something out there that I don't like to generalize. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's an important part of your story. So when people think of an HR leader, they don't necessarily think of, and now people can only see you from a camera here in a certain <laughs> space, but they don't often think of a super ripped, muscle bound, ultra beard having person that looks like they chop down trees with their, with their hand. Like they just like (laughs) punch down a tree. So, and I love that about you. And I love, I love, I actually love breaking out of generalities in in general, Yes, but it is a unique position. So how did you, or it's a, it, it's unique. I've never quite met someone like you in this role, which I love. And I'm sure there are many other people like you in roles like this or have some similarities, but how did you get into HR? What was your path here? Well, First off, thank you for what I'm going to take as a compliment. It is. Uh, <laughs> your ability to punch over a tree with your bare hand is a huge compliment for me. <laughs> I'll take it. it. It's it's interesting because I was, my goal in life was to be a professional rugby player. It was incredibly simple. I wanted to play Pro- pro professional sports. rugby player. Correct. Okay. Um, that's what I grew up um, aspiring to in Wales. Um, and in, in Wales, like you know, rugby is a religion. It's, it's all we did. Uh, you know, I would spend, I would, I would sit at the back of the class with one of my buddies in school and we'd be um, deciding on who would go into our, our, our sort of our world 15. So, you know, picking the best players in the world to put them in a team mm-hmm. instead of paying attention to physics or chemistry or whatever it was that some poor teacher was trying to educate me in. And, and so, you know, I grew up in this way where I was entirely fixated on achieving this. Um, and to the point with there where I, and this will speak to who I am as a character, um, I ran, I was very lucky, um, but I, I ran track and field for Wales. Um, and I, I saw it as a great way to keep fit and to get faster to play rugby. Mm. To other people, that would be the pinnacle of their achievement. But to me, it was a step along the road to achieving what I wanted to achieve, which in some ways is great and it shows like that dedication, 
But in other ways, like I missed out on really enjoying that moment because of it. Um, and, and so when, when this was taken away through injury and, and, and not making it to the level I wanted to make it to, I had to completely reassess what I wanted to do in my life because I had it planned out. I knew what I was going to do at every landmark throughout my, my uh, playing career and then retirement. And there it was. And I had this lovely little image and picture of who I was. And it was all wrapped up in these physical achievements. Um, step forward to not being able to walk and being told I would never run again, never squat again um, because I was um, hurt and because I was going through surgery number, well, it was five now to date, um, everything changed. And so I moved to Canada and I felt like the best thing I could do would be to take up snowboarding because that's exactly what you do when you've had to retire from rugby because you've got a joint that doesn't work. Um, and immediately I went into snowboarding and I tried to become you know, the highest level of instructor that you could get to and really focused in on that. And again, it's this obsessive, addictive element to my personality, which I've managed to channel into positive directions. Um, and once again, knee falls to pieces, a um, couple too many injuries, and I'm, I'm spending more time in the office on the ski hill than I am out on the ski hill. Uh, and the area of the snow school, which in some ways I fell into through passion and experience and in some ways I fell into because other people didn't want to do it, uh, was the HR side. And I, I, I realized that my, my passion for coaching, because I've been coaching sports since I was 17 years old, that was then a passion for coaching people in there, both on the hill and then inside. And so I'm writing policies, I'm writing training programs, I'm delivering training, uh, I'm doing all the scheduling. And then that filters into, well, I'm the guy that does everything to do with the people. So in the shoulder seasons, I was very lucky that my, my boss at the time saw some potential here and he tasked me with recruiting our, uh, our team. So in the shoulder seasons, I had a job. So that was a win for me. So instead of like you know, going on EI and going and jumping on my mountain bike, which is what a lot of people did in the industry, um, I would spend my shoulder seasons sitting in the office uh, recruiting, um, attending you know, um, as many interviews as I could with as many different people from around the world as I could who looked like they were diverse, interesting individuals because I, I was beginning to form this idea in my mind that if we brought in doctors, lawyers, professionals, artists, people from around the world that wanted to come and take a career break in a very similar way to how I had sort of experienced it, I could build a, a snow school of people that would create return business. And what I now look back on as being the, the beginnings of my career as a recruiter really were looking at an end product of how do I get more people to come back for higher end lessons and connecting that with if we get people that will hold a conversation, that will engage the audience, that will help somebody learn to ski, but also enjoy their day. Um, then we're going to move forward as a snow school and that's going to result in revenue. That's going to result in increased business. That's going to result in, in changing of revenue models and, and how we do work. So it, it was fascinating because at the time I just thought I was hiring for our snow school, but I actually see the underpinnings of my entire career. So fast forward to another uh, knee injury. And I'm, I remember, I very vividly remember a day where I'd been told I wasn't going to snowboard for the rest of the season. There were two months left and I'm looking up on a powder day because my office looks straight up the chairlift line and I'm, I'm looking at and I watched the entire mountain get tracked out and I thought, why am I driving up here to torture myself? And I mean this from, it was a truly torturous sight to watch a mountain, which I wanted to be on, get skied out 
and not be able to participate in something that lit me up inside. And what I connected with was I'd taken up snowboarding because I wasn't ready to be done with rugby. And I needed that physical, um, that, that physical release to put me in a mental place that I wanted to be in to then go and do the work that I wanted to do. And as soon as that was taken away again, I realized that it, it was time to move because I needed to do something different because that was going to be detrimental to my mental health. Um, and that led me into first sales and then into uh, full-time agency recruitment. Um, and I, I, I walked into rooms with this plethora of experience, which I believe brought a different human to the conversations than people were expecting. I wasn't a 22 year old kid coming in, trying to make a, trying to make a placement in uh, agency world. I was somebody who was, I mean, I, I did, I had my first agency recruitment job at 32 years old. Um, and I'm sitting there learning an industry, but learning it from the perspective of having spent years and years and years working in and around incredible people who were continually teaching me. So that when I walked into these conversations, I felt ready to help people build businesses and to build teams as opposed to just make a placement. Mm. And from there, I, I like to think I got very lucky. Uh, I met some incredible people. Um, one of whom, you know, very well, um, Karis Hogarty, who is uh, now at Ada as their head of people. Uh, she took me under her wing mm-hmm. and, um, she was one of the most defining influences and still is on my career at that time mm-hmm. because she encouraged me to recruit in the way that I was developing and she saw as the way to help businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I then, yeah, I, I, I listened as much as I possibly could to when Karis talked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I joined her at Collier's with a very funny story, which I'm sure we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's helped me become the now head of people and culture because what the two of us both agreed on and still to this day is that um, you can only effectively recruit if you understand the entire business. And so now I get to sit here and have a a team working with me to build a business through elements such as recruitment. Mm -hmm. um, Although that's where I've had my primary education in HR. Okay. So let's go all the way back to when you're a rugby player. Um, and you and I have talked a lot about this, so I'm just going to go direct at it. Uh, you're you're someone who who's been pretty blunt about being like I'm kind of a reformed alpha male type <laughs> guy. And one of the things that really stood out to me is like you used to talk to me, or you have talked to me about. Quite frankly, it's like I used to be very motivated by fast, like kind of traditional tropes, like fast cars, and you know, like who I dated and what they would look like, and like what social status I had. That really mattered to you at one point but stopped mattering to you. So yeah, what happened? It's, it's so interesting because I, I, I believe we're all a product of our environment mm-hmm. and I believe we're a product of our coaching. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a, I grew up in a world where at, at 15, when I would go and play for uh, North Wales or East Wales or whatever the, the team was mm-hmm. at the end of the game, every person in the clubhouse wanted to buy me a beer because I, being the standout player on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And at 15, that's a really interesting world to be walking into because, I mean, for a start, you're three years short of legal drinking age, mm-hmm. and yet that's the reward structure. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, you know, it was so patently obvious that there were certain things that I could do which would make me fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very lucky, again, I go back to, you know, my, my Welsh rugby coach, a guy called Mike Griffith, uh, who was... I quote him today and it's 
25 years since we first met. Um, he was the calming influence that I needed because it was very easy to get caught up in play well, win, go out, get drunk, uh, and turn up the next day and, you know, train with a hangover, move forward with it, you know, because we had a great time at this, you know, on this night or in this place or, uh, and some of the unhealthy influences that, that live in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike was well ahead of his years in terms of uh, no drinking, look at your diet, train in the gym, put all the emphasis on that. But, you know, these influences kept coming in and out of my life. Like there was a standing joke of the, the rugby club that I wanted to go and play for. Um, if you looked at the bar, the players bar after the game, there was a lineup of 15 women, all of whom were blonde, five foot seven. Um, and you couldn't tell the difference. Which, when I even think and say that out loud now, it's just it's a repulsive thing to say because that's that was the ideal. That was what people thought was you know a reflection of success. Whereas actually, it's got nothing to do with it. But that was the world that we grew up in, and that's what we therefore idolize, and that's what we you know look towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the, the the difference maker for me was the the incredible female influences in my life from an early age. When I think back on on my being a kid, um, just as much as I remember the great moments of of winning whatever sport it was in, mm-hmm. I vividly remember the moments of disappointment in um, my in the one specific occasion. I went out and had a, a skin full of beers the night before a game, um, and I remember um, I was very lucky. I landed the winning kick from the touchline um, that day, um, but that memory went away very quickly because the look of disappointment in my mum's eyes when I literally threw up over the wall of a cemetery as we pulled into the car park at the, uh, at the rugby ground. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. That one scarred me. Mm-hmm. I never drank the night before a game for the rest of my career mm-hmm. because I couldn't handle that look of disappointment from somebody I respected that much. Mm-hmm. And that was a, I was what, 15, 16, 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that was the turning point in my life. That and a conversation with our, um, with Mike, our Welsh rugby coach who took us down to the woods one day to run some sprints and uh, pulled us in. And one of the boys was hung over and, and he looked at us and he said, any one of you can come to my sessions hung over. Not a problem. He's like, I will run you till you puke and you'll never come back again. And then he just said, three, two, one, go. And the, 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 the six of us went herring off up this hill thinking, wait, did we, what, what just happened here? And I better win the sprint. And it was that it was, it was a light bulb for me, but you know, it was one of those moments where you get pulled back in. Injury led to, you know, a first year of rugby at um, a university getting wiped out. So I partied, I drank, I hung out with people that I wouldn't necessarily have hung out with. Um, and I didn't like myself. And it, it was at the end of that first year where I went for a run. It was summer's day, went for a run. Uh, and one of my friends said to me, I was like, hey, let's go for a beer. I said, no, I don't drink. And he said, well, that's funny because like, yesterday I you know, had about 10 pints with you. And I was like, yeah, I know it's over. And you know, he gives me that, yeah, 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 we'll see. And I'm like, no, no, it's over. Um, I'm a rugby player again. Mm-hmm. And from that moment forward, I, I, didn't, I didn't drink for the next, what, three years, um, played rugby. Unfortunately, it all ended for me at that point. But I was true to myself again because there was nothing more important than that feeling I got on the pitch and that sense of achievement and that being able to be proud again of exactly who I was and what I was doing. And I've never found that balance uh, when I've had the negative influences in my life, you know, such as alcohol. Mm-hmm. Well, and 
to, to bring it to something around your discipline today, like around work discipline and what I see in my job as a coach, like those ideas, like, so let's say those kind of traditionally kind of alpha, like actually let's just call it what it is, that kind of like toxic male ideas of like, you've got to date someone that looks a certain way. You've got to, you've got to have a certain kind of physique. You've got to act a certain kind of way. You know, you have to drive a certain kind of car. So things that we grew up in, with in the 70s and the 80s of what it would mean to be kind of like a, a man and like a yeah. competitor and, and, you know, someone to be uh, envied and, and looked to as being successful. Those things, as ridiculous as they are as we talk about it, if we transport it into the business world, they still play out and they play out in different ways, like how much money you make, how much power you have, like, you know, like how you present yourself online, like how people take photos of themselves, like these like really toxic ways of being might have evolved and changed. But actually, I think they've just maybe obscured themselves a little bit more and they're they're still at play. You seem to be someone who's pretty comfortable with holding up a mirror to yourself and and trying to really legitimately push past that and and kind of maybe view what it would be, how you want to present yourself uh, as a whole person today. How did you get like that? So how did you move past those yeah. kind of toxic ideas into who you are today? And I know it's an evolution, but just give us yeah. some general, general sign points. And I, I agree with you. I, I think it's 100% prevalent. And um, I think one of those moments for me is something as, as simple as some of the you know, Vancouver still has your traditional clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've been invited to those a few times for different work functions. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized just how comfortable, uh, sorry, uncomfortable I was in those places. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't think I can be relevant in a conversation there, but because I don't believe that I need to be standing in a, in a specific club area, environment, restaurant um, to have those conversations. And actually, I think anything that's exclusionary is probably taking us backwards. And that's the, that's the point for me. It's that if an environment isn't created to bring every person into it, then why would it be encouraged? Mm. And, you know, you know, you talk about something, some, something is something as simple as like hierarchy in a company. Why is there this traditional idea that everybody has to say yes if the person above them makes a recommendation? And I think traditionally that's the way it was. And you look back to 90s work culture um, and culture is set from the top down and decisions are made from the top down and you listen and do. Um, I remember interviewing for a company and and this one blew me away and made me realize that I wasn't going to be a a, a fit there long term Um, because I went in for my interview and they said, okay, so start time's 8 a.m. And I was like, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we finish at uh, five. And I was like, okay, perfect. And they said, but we both know that 8 a.m. is not the start time, right? And in my head, I was like, but, but you just said it was. <laughs> and he's like, so start time 7.30. Don't be late. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I'm confused. And he's like, and look, we both know that 5 p.m. is not the actual finish time, right? Mm-hmm. And again, I'm like, no. No, I, you just said it was, so you're going to need to clarify this for me. Um, and he said, well, it's at least six, probably 6.30. And my advice to you, don't be the first to leave. Mm-hmm. And again, this was, and, and maybe this is the thing, maybe there have been multiple moments throughout my life, which I, I would look back on and say, that was a moment that reinforced my ideas um, or my learnings more than ideas. Because like, 
how do you expect somebody to know how to exist and to operate in a mode where you tell them this is the start and the finish time, but actually we both know that's not the case. And, you know, don't be the first one to leave mm-hmm. because that's bullshit. Because what you're creating is a, a, a culture of fear. My, the way that I lead my teams and the way that it, I found I am best led is here's the goal. Go and achieve it. Mm-hmm. Tell me how I move a roadblock for you. Tell me where uh, you need support. Tell me where you need resources. Mm-hmm. Like when we create environments like that, people thrive mm-hmm. uh, because then they're going to be a part of the conversation. Whereas being told, here's the expectations, but they're not the real expectations and it actually is this. Mm-hmm. It just it makes me imagine work cultures that I don't want to be a part of and, and, and historical issues that have led to that exclusionary practices, mm-hmm. which again is fundamental to everything I disagree with. I'm going to push on you though, and I'm going to push real hard on something, but we'll leave company names out of it. Yeah. I know that this is super important to you and I know, I know you're totally real about it. Yeah. And I know you've worked in companies where like typical fear tactics yes. where like unhealthy power dynamics and like weird, like tropes of, you know, kind of traditional things uh, that we were trying to move past in society existed and i saw you as a professional try and live your values while operating in a system like that and you know you're not there now like so that's that says a lot but what's the difference between you and i could talk a big game about like it should not be like that when in reality it's like that a ton of places and people need to have jobs and not everybody gets to like find cool like startups that they're a part of so like how do people how do people work knowing they're going to live in some kind of version of this very likely, how do they move through their lives and and be authentic and be real? Like, how have you done it? I think, I think from everything I understand, that is the biggest question that we're in as a, as the creators of work culture and as, as leaders uh, right now. Um, And I believe we're on the cusp of an entirely new generation. Um, But to, I remember joining a meeting with an executive mm-hmm. and the first word that came out of their mouth was still got the beard. Hey, mm-hmm. and it was, it was, again, it was one of those moments in my life where I'm like, you don't see past that. Yeah. And what has my beard got to do with anything that I do? I, I show up and do on a daily basis. I, I had it yelled across a bar at me by another executive mm-hmm. when they were quite clearly drunk, that beard's got to go yeah. Two different companies. That yeah. beard's got to go. And I've just got off a plane, walked in. I was at, you know, a, a, a um, conference for the best, you know, highest achievers in the company. And I'm standing, I literally turned around and said, why? Yeah. Because I'm like, if you want to have that conversation, I'll have that conversation. I have no issues with you on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't call me out in public like that. And my response was actually, well, my billings seem to still be the highest in my department. So the beard doesn't appear to be doing that much damage. And my boss ended up walking that executive out of the room. And this is the problem for me because I I am very, very lucky that I have been, I've, I've had a confidence and an ability to make courageous decisions coached into me. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to, whether it's my my grandmother, my mother, my rugby coaches as a kid, like everybody taught me to be brave mm-hmm. and let the let the game, as it were, speak for me. Mm-hmm. 
and that to me is how we change the dynamic mm-hmm. because I was, I learned to back myself first before looking for affirmation from others. Mm-hmm. Because it, when you're in a sport where there's inter- individual contribution, it's absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. Now, when, uh, you know, when we talk about like, what are the issues, what are the unhealthy situations that I now encounter in my work life? It's that when you think that, and I'm going to butcher the percentages here, but I believe there's something like 80% of women drop out of sport by the age of 16. Well, I was just ramping up at that age. And some of the best coaching I ever received was after that age. And I was coached as an athlete. Whereas what we see now, and I think it's even more prevalent today, is we see that um, women, as a specific example, are not only dropping out of sport because they don't feel they have a place there. They don't see the um, goals and the rewards of staying in it. But they also have society's ideas of what they need to look like, behave like, act like, all that bullshit which is actually taking away from some of the most formative experiences that a person can have. And so I believe we're looking at two distinct sets of humans right now. And and, and think about this in a sales culture. How many times do we hear, let's hire athletes because athletes know how to be coached, know how to be pushed and know how to fail. Great. But what happens if people didn't have the opportunity to be an athlete in their formative years and therefore haven't been given that? Shouldn't it be on us to now provide that? And so like when I look at this, I, I believe that I believe I'm lucky because society rewarded me, and we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. I was a straight, white, able-bodied male. Mm-hmm. Like one more who went to great schools, um, mostly because my parents were teachers there, so I could get in and we didn't have to pay. Mm-hmm. Or if we did, it was very small. And then I managed to carry that on through to university because of a combination of sport um and academics. Mm-hmm. So I had a I, I, and I don't mind saying this in the grander scheme of things. I had it easy mm-hmm. because the roadblocks are very, very small. Mm-hmm. And so for me now, what we need to do, and I put myself in this is we need to stand up and rather than just saying, this is how I'm going to make my career. It's like, this is how we're going to create opportunity for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and where, you know, and I appreciate your coaching more than, you know, um, mm-hmm. throughout the last few years on, on multiple times of doing this, um, we need to put ourselves in a place which could be seen as risky so that others don't have to. Yeah. All right. So I want to hit on, on something and man, I feel like I'm really like, you know, like going at you here and it's, <laughs> it's, it's cause I know I, cause yeah. I know you've, I know you actually have thought about these things and yes. it's not that that's relatively rare. It's that it can be rare. Most people think about these things, but the level of accountability and honesty you have with yourself and your ability to speak to it is why I'm, is what makes you rare for this conversation. So I'm going to push it even further. So we got these people who are making these like super awkward, like beard conversations, like or comments, like super weird. And uh, I'll, do you mind if I relate it to something about my own career path? Not at all. Okay. When I got hired at the first coaching firm that I worked at before I started my own, um, the boss at the time hired or the owner, the, CEO hired me and was like, you know, this whole song and dance, like, Hey, we want a therapist in here. We want someone to help with our coaching. And I started working there and I got the same song and dance that you did. Like, Hey, we start early, we stay late, never be the first person to, you know, never be the first person to go home. Um, we're, ex- we expect you to answer emails at night. We expect you to work at least one night out of the weekend. And like, I had just come from working in the social services and I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is crazy. But you know, I'd taken the leap, like fair game. I've entered into a different arena. I'm game. Uh, but first day the, the my new boss said to me, Hey, um, so I have three things to ask you. 
and not ask. He's like, there's three things I need you to do. Uh, the first is uh, nobody wants to see your tattoos. So I want you to get specially tailored shirts that have longer sleeves so that no one will, no clients will ever see your tattoos. And I was like, uh, okay. He's like, the next thing, I never want you to tell anyone that you played in a punk band um, because we work with like really high end boutique stuff. Like it's very professional. If you tell that to anyone, they're going to not like, they're not going to like it. I was like, all right. And the third thing is don't tell anyone you're a therapist uh, because they're going to feel like you're, they're, anal you're, they're being analyzed. It's going to make them uncomfortable. And I was like, I was silent for a second. I was like, so why did you hire me? It's like, well, you know, da, da, da. And I, I realized two things in, a, in an instant. I was just a salesperson and I had not been, I had not applied for a sales job, but I'd been given a, a sales job and kind of been tricked into it. And I'd left like pretty serious uh, therapeutic career uh, to do that. And so I remember just thinking like, oh, who is this clown? I've totally been tricked. But the second thing was I need to draw a line here. And so the line I drew was, hey man, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, for the first three months, wear normal length shirts, tell people I played in punk bands and tell them I was a therapist. And if in that three months you get one complaint, I'll tell you, man, I will get the longest sleeves. It will look like I'm wearing my grandfather's shirt. I'll never mention anything else. If you get one complaint about it, I'll change. But give me three months. And if in three months you don't get one complaint, then we'll never bring it up again. And, you know, beside this guy being like a legitimate dork, he was like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll do that. Not only did I not get a complaint, people were captivated by it. They loved it. They were like, oh, you know, you're a therapist. They instantly applied an expert uh, level to me. Second, they loved that I played in a punk band. Every other coach that ever experienced was, and there's nothing wrong with this. It was just a person who'd come up through the business ranks who didn't have necessarily kind of like an interesting background story. And people love the tattoos. So when we go to group sessions, people are like, I want the tattoo guy to, to be uh, the person I work with. And I remember within the first three months, that leader being like, hey, you know, like I, I, I thought I'd shook up his thinking a bit where it's like, oh, there can be different kinds of people. But, you know, I ended up working in that company for many years. And something I just realized is like, you just want to make a lot of money. You don't care what anyone looks like. You just want people who are going to make you money and make you feel powerful and safe. And you're still going to be the same shitty idiot that, that hired me on day one. And the thing that I learned there was like, I went into that company with the idea of I'm going to create some kind of change. And I'm not going to say that company didn't change or that they're not a better company today. And I don't want to say it was because of me. I think there's a lot of people who are unhappy with the status quo, like the like work crazy hours, culture of fear and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's not my company. I don't own it. I'm not the guy that's going to like make all that money from it. I'm out there like putting my blood, sweat and tears. And also I have a platform because I'm a straight white dude. I can, if I get fired from that company, you know, like I'll be able to get another job, no problem. I've been told my whole life that I should speak up. I grew up in punk band, so I'm always like trying to shove my opinion in people's faces. My whole life set me up to try and create that kind of change. And my also life set me up for when I was like, fuck this place, fuck this dude, I'm not going to work here anymore, that I could go do my own thing. Because, and part of it is because of my expertise and all the things, like I bring a certain thing to it. But you and I can talk about big game about being brave and having the tough conversations and standing up for ourselves. But the whole world has told us we're supposed to do that. And it's still hard for people like you and me. I know how hard it was for you. I know what it did to your sense of self and how terrible that felt. So how can we in good conscience tell other people they should go and do that if they haven't had the same like leg up that we've had? What? And 
God, I can I can relate so much to that 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 conversation or the conversations that you had there, and I love your response. That watch me for three months, um, because I think we can do that for other people. Mm-hmm. I think we need to create platforms for others. I um, there were two incredibly powerful conversations that I had, which really took me in through somebody else's eyes, um, and it was when I joined. <clears throat> it was when I joined a, a company. And um, I had one of the most talented people I've ever met on my team. And pretty much the first question that she asked me, uh, on my LinkedIn headline, it speaks to creating opportunity for those that don't have it uh, and priding myself on being a leader in the DNI space. Um, and the question she asked me was, are you full of shit? And I was, I was sitting there and it made me, <clears throat> it made me grin. Because I was like, whether she realized it or not, in that moment, she did feel safe to ask the question because what I I had put up there, Mm -hmm. but good for her for challenging. And I I asked her, I was like, can you, can you expand on the question? (laughs) And she said, well, I've read your LinkedIn um, tagline and it's very on trend. So I was just wondering if you actually believed it or if you're just full of shit. And I, I loved it for it. I, I thought it was one of the most incredible conversations that all the incredible conversation starters that we could have had because however we left that conversation that day, I felt like she had been able to say something and ask a real question. And I hope the answer that I gave her felt real because this is how I believe that we do it. Like it's, there's me standing on a soapbox, you standing on a soapbox and saying create opportunity for others is one thing, but we have to live it. And so when she asked me that very direct question, if I had become anything but open to that, then yes, I would have been full of shit. Um, But instead, fast forward three months um, and the same individual and I were having a conversation where it was she felt guilty about taking opportunities, which she didn't feel that she had earned yet. And the conversation that I came back to with her was how many doors do you think have opened for me because I played high-level sport, I went to top universities, I've been the number one salesperson in my team. Like, How many doors opened for me that I actually didn't deserve Mm -hmm. from a perspective of knowledge but that I allowed myself to walk through? And it was interesting because she looked at me and you, I could see in her eyes that this, was a, this wasn't the way that she'd ever looked at it before. And I said, and the, 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 the actual words I used to her were take the damn seat. Because even if she didn't feel like she was ready, being in that room, being at that table was a change, was progress. And she would learn more sitting at that table, even contributing through presence rather than thought to begin with would change not only how people thought but also what she knew and 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 her own sense of validity and 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 self-esteem and ability to be in that room because i believed that when she sat at the table the table would be taken off a pedestal because i think the biggest challenge that a lot of people have in their careers is they don't think they have value in conversations whereas i would argue the other that it's actually the person with the freshest eyes that often has the most value and so it, helping her and, and, and being the support behind her that, that encouraged her to move forwards in that moment, that's what I think we can do. And then it's the second part of that is like, 
helping people when they're not in the room. Mm. There's something terrifying. Like ninety percent of ninety um, percent of conversations about your career happen when you're not in the room. So never staying quiet when somebody is being discussed if you back them. Mm. So if if I have somebody talented on my team or I've seen somebody do something very very uh, that could be influential or, or positive in a company, I'm going to talk about it. Because at, at that point, somebody who may not have seen, heard, understood, or even known of a, a human in the company that could be driving the company forward, they don't have perspective until someone like myself or yourself or other leaders offer it. And that's when we have to use our position and our influence to put others in a position of influence. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like your answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push a little bit further, though. Um, Again, because you've worked in like the big systems, you've worked in huge, huge, huge companies, and you've worked mm-hmm. in small, smaller companies. There's an interesting idea that we have when we talk about um, leadership and creating safe, like safe spaces and places for 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 people to like grow in. Yes, and that's competition. And I'm a competitor, 100%. I. It's funny, like when I was younger, I used to be like, oh, I don't like competition. I only compete with myself. And there's this band called Gorilla Biscuits. It's like one of my favorite bands. They have a song called Competition. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, competition. It's like, you know, not not good. And I have this, my best friend, Dave Larson, is like, dude, you're like the most competitive person I've ever met. I'm like, no, no, you know, I'm competitive. And really, it wasn't until I was like in my 40s. I'm like, oh, I'm totally competitive. And in fact, I'm kind of like, passive aggressive i've previously been passive aggressive about it because i just don't fucking own it like own it like i'm competitive i want to win i want to do good things but something i've learned as i've gotten older is like there's be a competitor if if that's true to you be that competitor and and in fact i'd encourage more people to embrace competition as a really good thing but the idea that i have really learned is the idea between competition for achievement versus competition that i would consider to be toxic to take something away from someone um and like, so having a nice watch, I'll give you an example. I like watches. Um, I want to achieve something. I want to be able to get a watch that I really love and that I covet and I think it's cool. And I, I'm using a watch because it's like an unnecessary thing, right? Yeah. Like I don't want to have a watch because it's a status symbol and I want to make someone else feel bad. I want to have a watch because it's something I aspire to because I think it's beautiful and cool and interesting and it's a meaningful accomplishment for me. But it's not to like wear on my wrist and like, you know, like make other people like be like, oh my God, look at that guy. Look at all these things. Or like a position or money or or you know, getting a promotion, whatever it is, or having your idea rise to the surface. Competition is, I believe, a healthy, healthy thing. And again, I grew up like going to university. I grew up in like a generally intact family. I grew up like, you know, I I was terribly bullied when I was a kid and which caused me to like become more competitive to always try to like out, like outpace people. But like, competition is a part of our world. You put a seed in the ground, it's in competition with the soil. It's trying to burst up. So competition isn't bad. You are a competitor. I know that about you, obviously not just from your background, um, sports background, but just what I know about you. So if we're creating this space where we're like, we want people to speak up, advocate for themselves. Like when you say, take the damn seat, like show up in the conversation. How do we move past these generalities of just being like, oh, do that to really create those spaces where there can be healthy competition that competition is viewed as something that is like how do you have even fair competition because some people have more privilege than others so how do we create like the proper idea and structure around competition so that doesn't become toxic toxically competitive yeah 
again, it's, it, it's such a relevant question and such a real question for, for where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer for me is, I think we need to change the goalposts mm-hmm. because we need, well, and, and when I say that, it's like the rules of the game are changing. And take recruitment, for example. Um, if I wanted to go out and recruit a sales leader tomorrow mm-hmm. and I was told, and again, I just, I fall into my own experience set of recruitments where I grew up. Um, and I was told we need, we need a great sales uh, leader and you need to bring him in as quickly as possible. Well, that's easy. I go and line up five white males who come from major companies with, you know, if we're looking in the US and Ivy League, Ivy League education and I fill that job in a week. That would be a small personal win for me because I filled the position mm-hmm. where I believe we need to look at the rules where we need to say, okay, we need to fill a sales leader role that can change this company's future. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to do that, we need to look outside of the traditional boxes mm-hmm. because actually I want to know who is the best traditional candidate because mm-hmm. they don't become irrelevant just because we're changing the rules of the game. Who is the best? But instead of, stacking it with five people that all look sound and have learned the same. They've probably all got MBAs. They probably have all come up in a major and then gone to it. You know, it's, it's those same commonalities. Well, go and find the best diverse candidate panel for that position. Find the person that scrapped their way up, that went to night school, that has started in a small company and it, we could be the break into a big company. Go and flip the entire position requirements on its head and find the human that has the potential to change the way that we as a company think and achieve. Mm. Because if you do that, then it goes from being a small win of we filled a position to a major win of this company is now going to think and act in a different way. Mm. And it, it takes brave leadership. It takes that um, change, which I believe is coming in that we should not be rating ourselves on what was successful in the past. We should be rating ourselves on how we disrupt, how we change and how we evolve an industry, because that's the challenge that I put out to as many people as I speak to is like change an industry. Don't do a job, change an industry. And I don't want that to sound lofty bullshit because, you know, I think it could, but I mean, I had a career in commercial real estate and the amount of times that I would speak to unbelievable and an incredibly talented, I, I don't like the word unbelievable, um, outstanding female talent who previously had not been represented in the workforce, in the sales um, roles in commercial real estate. And I found some of the best talent I've ever met there mm-hmm. because we went looking for it. Mm-hmm. I remember challenging my recruitment team one day um, and saying, I'd like us to find a female plumber. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the room said, there aren't any. And I was like, well, of course there aren't if you're not looking for them. Mm-hmm. And, and they were, what do you mean? I was like, well, if you're not looking for them, you'll never find someone. You will never find a female plumber if you, if you don't look for a female plumber. There's plenty, by the way, of female plumbers on the planet and very, very good ones. Mm-hmm. But if, you, if we go into something with a subconscious bias or an unconscious bias that we don't believe that, that these people exist, you will never find them. Mm-hmm. Add to that, if we don't believe they exist and we're not looking for them, we're not outwardly um, going to search for people like this, we're not creating opportunity. So there isn't that, that desire to find which creates opportunities. There's a knock-on effect here. Um, and one of, the, one of the proudest moments I ever had with that team was two years later, I got a note, um, came through teams like, hey, Dan, I'm like, what's that? They just hired a female plumber. <laughs> and the pride, <laughs> the pride, because um, 
because it represented far more than one position being filled. It, it represented a change in thinking. Mm-hmm. And so for me, we've got to do that. Like we, we've got, and, and, and I think, again, I don't like the saying, I think I personally believe in where I'm seeing wins in my own career mm-hmm. is telling myself that if, if a company doesn't want to accept these disruptive, different, challenging ideas, why am I working there? Okay. Yes. Like, so like when I talk to people and, and uh, when I talk to people in general, not just on the podcast, but in general, you know, everyone has the lofty ideas. Like we should be, we need to be like this. Me too. Like, you know, like we have these lofty ideas, but then in reality, it's like, you know, I just want to fill the role. I just want to hit my target. I just want to like, I just want to like not think about this at night. I want to just have the, the job get done well, whatever it is. Right. And it's like, you can have lofty ideas and I get like, um, you can have a lofty idea until the rubber meets the road and you just want something to be done and you want it to be done in the way that you perceive it is to be like the quote unquote right way. I'd say there's kind of like, we have to like presuppose that if you want to like create change, you've got to be willing to be inconvenienced. You've got to be willing to delay timelines. You've got to be willing to reduce certain gains to get to a greater gain in the future. So you got to be patient and thoughtful. So you got to presuppose that. So if you presuppose that and you put that against like normal business models, that is not like a big company wants to make money and it wants to make money predictably and fast. Yeah. They, but they want to talk the big game. Like, you know, it's like whatever, whatever day it is or whatever month it is where it's like, Oh yeah, we celebrate this population by blah, blah, blah. And they put their marketing campaign out. It's like, yeah, but like a quarterly quarterly earnings calls, like that's not you're not going to be like, yeah, we didn't get earnings because we are like investing in a longer term play to actually have a properly diverse company. So when yes. the way I, the reason I reacted to what you just said there is like, listen, stop working at shitty companies, like yeah. stop working at companies that and and I I believe you're someone who represents this very well. Stop working at companies that are morally compromising, but talk talk a big game. And that doesn't mean the people that work in those companies are bad or that the leaders are bad. It's that we're all stuck in this system of like, yeah, but at the end of the day, when rubber hits the road, people want to make money and they want to make it predictably and fast. So to change the game means stop working at companies that by themselves, they're not bad companies, but they're not built for change. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I, I, when I interview people and when I meet people, the first question I ask them is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I literally phrase it like that. And it's it's interesting for me because I'm sure people would criticize that and say that it's uh, an inappropriate question or some other bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the most important thing that I could ask somebody because it, it takes me into some very different places with, with, with humans because that's who we're talking to in an interview straight away. I get the answer, I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. I get the answer, I want to look after my kids. I get the answer, I want to be a CEO. Uh, I get the answer, I want to do my nine to five and then be left alone. And that's teaching me about who someone is. And it gives me some incredible places to go with them in conversations because in, in everything I've seen, the most successful people in life are purpose driven Mm -hmm. because if they have a purpose in what they're doing and where their purpose meets their skills, Mm -hmm. you have a perfect career for them. And, And a lot of people miss that and they feel trapped inside companies because it's paying a paycheck. And I mean, look, we live in the, we live in the lower mainland. I live in Squamish, I live in Vancouver. Like we live in one of the hardest places to afford housing that you could be. So there are constraints on our ability to say, fuck it, I'm going to go work for somebody better. Mm-hmm. But if you truly want to 
match that purpose with those skills, then you have to be willing to take that chance. And that means employers, that means companies have got to dial into somebody's purpose more than what can they do? What are the outcomes? Mm-hmm. And that's where I find people are successful. So for me, um, my North Star was always, I got to be able to call my mom on the weekend and her be proud of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that if I'm compromising my own beliefs. If I'm um, hiring somebody for convenience because it always works that way as opposed to hiring somebody for um, uh, for them being the right person for the job. Mm-hmm. I can't do that if I'm paying a man $20,000 more than I would pay a woman because the woman told me as she walked through the door that this is what I used to make and I'm happy with 5K more. And yet I budgeted a position at 20K above that, but I'm going to save some money for the company by paying her not paying her for this position. Mm-hmm. Like this happens on a day-to-day basis. That's why gender pay inequity exists. It's why it was the first thing I did when I got to Wildpack mm-hmm. that we pulled a compensation study for the entire company and made adjustments where needed so there was zero pay inequity based on gender. Mm-hmm. Like it's central to everything we're doing as a people and culture team. No one knows it. We didn't tell anyone we were doing this, but it's because it shouldn't be a statement. It shouldn't be a flag in the ground saying, look at us, look what we're doing. It should, that should just be part of how we work. Yeah, man. Well, and again, because that's the difference between like, I think, like policies that are about coddling people. And like, I think like for for marginalized identities, like I'd say the first thing, worst thing is probably like being held out of positions and being held down. The second is like feeling like you're you're just being coddled by people and just being like, oh, yeah, you know, instead of just being like really given a fair shot, like a correct fair shot with the right amount of support that uh, meets the specific needs of each person, but also creates a system that's equitable. 100%. Can can I give you a way that I like to frame up hiring, like talking Please. about hiring? Uh, function versus purpose. So what's the function of someone's role versus what's the purpose of, of a specific hire? And I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to I'm going to relate it to to bands. Okay, so I'm going to ask Patrick because he's sitting across from me. Patrick, what? <laughs> Patrick and Patrick plays in a killer band called Chain Whip. For anyone who is into like punk or hardcore, listen to Chain Whip. They're sick. And he also has a solo project called Pack Rat, which just has a brand new LP, which is mwah. And Spencer, which we can never forget, he's in a band called Endgame, which is fantastic. They've got a new single that's dropping at midnight tonight. So I guess by the time people see this, it will, it will be out. Um, so Patrick, you are a killer musician, great drummer, great guitar player, great songwriter. Thank you. What's the function of a band? Uh, function of a band... <clears throat> Is to express. Okay. It's to express what? It's to express what you're feeling, what the members of the band are feeling. Mm-hmm. But what about a cover band? <laughs> the function of a cover band is uh, to get people to dance. Okay. <laughs> it's to entertain. So are you talking about the function or are you talking about the purpose? What's yeah. the function of a band? Is it, is it not to entertain? It's to play music. Yeah. Right? And that could be recording records. It could, but what a band does is based on its purpose. Mm-hmm. So if a, band, if a band just wants to, hey, you know what? Let's, I just want to play music with friends, get people dancing, then the function of the band is always the same. It's to play music. Mm-hmm. But the purpose of the band is to entertain. So we're not out trying to write songs. We're just trying to play like Bruce Springsteen's covers at the, at the bar on the weekend or Guns N' Roses or whatever. If you're like, hey, I want to express myself creatively, then the purpose of the band is different. It's about it's about creativity. And then the function of the band is still the same. 
the functions of AMP is to play music. Um, it can play music in a slightly different way now because now you're writing music, but the function might slightly change or adapt, but the function is always the same, play music, and it can just switch. But the purpose can be radically different based on what you want out of your band. Dan, if you have a hire, what's the mm. function of a sales leader? Well, I'll give an example of our company right now, Wildpack. The, you know, when, when I look at our sales team, the function of our, our sales leader is to make sure that we're selling as many cans as possible to massively oversimplify, but to make sure we're hitting revenue targets by selling as many cans or can services as possible. Okay. What's the purpose of, a, of your current sales leader? Ours is to grow our clients' companies. Okay. There you go. And what's going to be different for a sales leader at different times of your business is going to have different purpose. And like part of your part of a part of a, a when I think of purpose, it's like, well, what's the purpose of my company? So, for example, Cadence, we're about to like restructure. We're doing a, a lot of restructuring right now in a cool way. And well, why are we restructuring? What's the purpose of it? OK, we're going to create this VP position. The function is this and it might slightly change, but it will essentially always be the same in just different versions. But the purpose, I think baked into the purpose of every hire should be how do they help build our company to realize uh, like a, a proper work culture, like yes. an equitable, fair, like really properly structured work culture. That's their purpose. And that purpose is going to change. So that could be like this time we are dedicated to hiring a, uh, a female leader or a person of color or a person of color who is a female leader. And that actually is part of the purpose. I often hear people and push back a lot about like, well, you know, don't you want the best person for the job? Well, the best person for the job isn't the function of the job because most people can learn the function of anything. It's what are we trying to do with this hire? What's the purpose of the hire? And that's like, and by that was my dummy, my dummy voice. <laughs> it's, my, it's my idiot voice. I like and I shouldn't do that because a lot of people... I think it's a fair thing to ask, but it's like total, like, this is like starter thinker. <laughs> like question asked, like, don't you want the best person for the job? Well, yeah, but the best person for the job isn't the function of the job. It's the purpose of the job. It's the purpose of the position at this time in the company. What do you think of that? Well, look at, look at, um, uh, look at the U.S. right now, U.S. politics. Because mm -hmm. I, and, and sorry, to answer your question, I 100% agree. And the reason I say look at U.S. politics right now is because because Biden just came out and did this. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching this with fascination because it's the exact conversations being played out in the media that we've been having as leaders within people, talent, um, diversity and inclusion for years. Because he came out and said that they're going to um, hire a black female Supreme Court justice mm -hmm. and Sorry if I just got the title of the judge wrong, but I believe it's the Supreme Court Justice. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing the dummy voice that you just did, I'll just say Fox News said <laughs> that this is um, unacceptable. And what about all the white men that are going to miss out because we're only going to, or they're only going to hire a black woman? Right. And I'm like, this is this is the conversation that we're in every single day because yeah. if you look at talent, talent development. This is it. It's saying that let us go, let us look at a representation across a company mm -hmm. and understand if it's going to get us towards where we want to go. So purpose over function, mm -hmm. because the function is any, anyone that's qualified can, can uh, perform the function of a role. Oh. But what if we need to change the way we think? Because at the heart of diversity, of diversity of thought, mm -hmm. if you hire people or bring people into you, uh, your, your company from the same school, the same neighborhood, the same community, the same um, 
clubs, the same sports all the time, you've, you've got a absolute microcosm of talent. And then the second you bring somebody in from a different town, from a different school, from a different community, from a different country, uh, from a different uh, set of companies that they've come from before, you add somebody who is going to think differently because they've been brought up in a different way. That's what challenges. It's law of diminishing returns. If you keep hiring people from that same microcosm, ultimately you're going to end up with the same results over and over again. And where it, I believe, as you say, the rubber meets the road and where I think companies are experiencing it now is if you're a $2 billion company, you're not making it to $4 billion company by doing exactly the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Whereas you might make it to an $8 billion company quicker than you can make it to four that way if you bring some people in that are going to challenge the status quo. Mm-hmm. Totally. Because law of diminishing returns says that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you get incrementally less from it. Yeah, well, that's what companies are doing today. And that's why at the center of and because I, I, I take issue with anyone that says, we shouldn't have to have a, a representation quota when we're looking at um, candidates for a role, we shouldn't have to say that we need to look at candidates from outside of traditional backgrounds for a role, because actually we should. Because that's what we should have been doing all along. And unfortunately, now we're just putting some data behind our actions to hold ourselves accountable. It's holding up the mirror again. That's all it is. And the result will be that more people are presented opportunity and therefore bring more to the companies that they go into. Totally, man. And like, this is this thing that kills me. Like function is like, you know, a band plays music. That's what a band does. And then based on what your purpose is, the way they go about playing music could be different. Maybe they write originals. They're still playing music, but they're, they're, they're playing now original music. Right. So that implies there's some writing process that will be slightly different. So if I was hiring someone, I was like, okay, the purpose is we want to be like, we want to put out great original records. Okay. Well, then the function is still the same, but I'm looking for slightly different attributes for who will be in the band. Right. I'll be looking for people who aren't just good musicians, but are also good songwriters and who know how to play in a collaborative space. If, hey, we're just trying to have fun with this band, like we just want to like have good times. Okay, so it's like maybe it's like just like a parent rock band, you know what I mean? Great. Well, then we're not looking necessarily for like a, a like a ultra songwriter. We're just looking for someone who knows how to like casually play an instrument, but we're still playing music. Yes. And like that idea of when people talk a lot about you know changing our work culture and even building like I like I'm not allergic to the ideas of company culture because I I mean I talk about it all day, but. <laughs> The generalities of which people speak about this, like company culture is important to us. Okay, so that then must be part of your purpose when you're hiring people. We know what our company culture is. So when we're hiring people, we know what their function is. But the purpose of each hire should be this person in a clear and direct way. We understand how they are going to move us closer to the culture we're trying to achieve. Like purpose is dominant in hiring practices, in my opinion, in good companies. Yes, And if it's not, then the underlying purpose is, well, we just want to make money. We want to make money fast and predictably. Like, yes. And if you don't take a hold of your purpose, then the purpose is we just want to make money, money fast and predictably, which is not bad, but you should yes. own that. You should be like, this is what we want to do. And knowing what your purpose is for hiring and knowing the function is important, but predominantly purpose should overshadow function because function should just be like, yeah, of course, that's what we expect. But now what's the purpose? That should be the dominant hiring decision. That's the way that I encourage people to think about it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree because every hire has a result mm-hmm. and 
that result is a controllable element. And if that, and by that, I don't necessarily mean do they hit their KPIs. I mean, how, what is the effect they have walking into the company? And we as leaders, anyone involved with bringing people into a company have to create an environment where that result could be change rather than immediate results. Because that's where we all win in the long term. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating for me because, again, to go back to, and apologies for anybody who's listening to this that uh, hasn't grown up around rugby, but rugby is known in the, well, around the world as the most inclusive sport because for every, um, for every body size, for every human, you know, whether you're tall and skinny, short and stocky, quick, slow, quick, you know, whatever there is, there is a place for you on a rugby pitch because the positions in it are so varied. It's one of the reasons that it's such a high participation sport because everybody can play. There is not a dominant um, individual who will absolutely need, be needed in that team. And that has completely framed the way that I think about a company because there's a place for every single person. And actually, a rugby team performs better if you have this diverse mix of characters, body shapes, who you are, what attributes you bring. And if you try and create this uniformity you lose. And that for me has, has shaped the way that I thought about hiring my entire life and, and building teams my entire life because we need to make space for what everybody can bring mm -hmm. rather than just thinking, let's take the safe option. And the safe option historically is white males mm -hmm. um, because we need to challenge that thought. Mm -hmm. When I, so two instances, like in the absolute inception of me coming to Wildpack and two of the major reasons that which I, I made this move. <clears throat> One, um, I asked the CEO, Mitch, and, and the COO, Chuck, two very, very smart humans. Um, I said, what have you done so far for in terms of diversity and inclusion? And Mitch said, we started with the board. And we do. We have a, a diverse board. For there are, there are billion-dollar companies that do not have the diversity on their board that we do. And it's something that we should be proud of. Um, he said, I've worked on the board. The rest now I put in your hands. And that, for me, was an incredible moment because we will build out through bringing in the right people and through having conversations like this. And, you know, I'm exactly what you're not supposed to have. I'm, I'm, I'm a white male who's, you know, being one of the foremost thinkers in our company on diversity and inclusion, which is a very interesting position to be. But what I would say is that nobody is working, a, nobody is building a diversity and inclusion strategy on their own. And anyone that thinks they are is not doing it as well as they could be. So immediately I go to my network, I go to my team. Um, and that's how we'll do it. Um, we embrace the people in the company that want to be a part of this conversation. The second part was that I hired two absolutely incredible individuals, both of whom happen to be women. And there's a million reasons for it. And the first off is that when you think about function, they're two of the best people I've ever seen at their jobs. Simple as that. And I put one person in as my head of business partnering and I brought one person in as my head of talent acquisition. They are brilliant at what they do they happen to be what would be diversity outside of white males. The other part of that, though, and this goes to, to me as a human, um, I want to be challenged on a daily basis, and I want somebody sitting next to me who I'm accountable to who will make me think differently. Mitch does it as my CEO. I will tell him something or I will share something with him. He will challenge it. And I love that. I need that. Jess and Jess 
because I hired two people with the same name because that's what you need in a company at this size at the moment, just to add a little bit of confusion. Um, Jess and Jess will challenge me at any opportunity and it makes me better and it makes them better. And it's, it's this that's going to take us forward. Um, I got asked to, I don't mentor men. I made a conscious decision that I do not mentor men because I don't think I'm going to, I hire men, I have men in my team, but on a personal level, when I mentor people, I don't mentor men because I don't think it's going to challenge me and push me in the same way because I can then just, I can recite my playbook and they'll get it, understand it and run with it. I think they could go and be better challenged by other people. All right. So, now I'm, I'm going to push on something. Sorry. Did you have something else to say? Cause no, I, no, no, go, go. Okay. So I want to, I want to say two things. Uh, first of all, let's go back to the idea of a function versus purpose versus purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what happens if you, if the person can't do the function, but they meet the purpose. And so I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hiring for a position at cadence and it's yeah. high stakes. Like this is my company. Like if the company fails, like I'm not only am I out of a job, everyone that works for the company is out of a job. And it's like that clear that so much stuff lays on my shoulders about making good and bad hiring decisions. But also it's like, you know, how my family lives, right? Like I'm responsible for a very young child. I have uh, my, my, I have a parent who lives with me, who needs my, who needs me to, you know, kind of manage everything. I've got a father who's quite ill, lives in a home. I've got, you know, like I've got a lot of responsibilities on my shoulders. You know what I want? I want to make sure my company makes good, predictable income. I want my company to grow and do that. And I want to tell you that when the rubber hits the road, I'm like, I just want someone who's easy. I can hire quick. Who's going to do a really, really good job. And I have to always think where's the purpose. I'm going to give you an example. We were doing some, we were doing some hiring and I left an interview and I called Jerry, who's our uh, VP of uh, operations. And you know, she's like my 100%, the person who challenges my thinking that he has person's not a good fit. Um, I don't think they're uh, like an advanced enough coach. You know, there's, there was a few barriers here from a function perspective. And Jerry said, well, what's the purpose of this hire? And I was like, ah, how dare you throw my own words in my face? And I was like, oh God. And we had this big de- debate back and forth. Actually, it wasn't a big debate because Jerry's like really, really insightful and knows how to kind of stimulate thinking. And I was like, all right, you know what? Good point. This suits, this person perfectly fits the purpose of this hire yeah. and I'm willing to, to take a leap of faith on the function side and didn't work out. Couldn't bring it on the function side and we had to fail fast. So I'm a big fan of, of the idea that was introduced to me by my friend, Matt from the hard times of failing fast, like fail fast. Cause it, you don't want to keep someone in a position that they're just not going to get to. You give them the fair amount of chances, support, create the right kind of structure but if they're not going to work out, you got to fail fast because if you truly want to um, pursue a purpose primarily and then function secondarily, that means that you've got to be able to like fail fast if they aren't going to be able to hit the function. And we did have to move someone out because they, they just couldn't they just couldn't um, master the function side that quick enough to be effective, although they did fulfill the purpose side. And it was a really hard decision to make because I was like. I can't keep someone in here because then it, it seems to me a bit performative and it seems to me like I'm being performative and just trying to be like, quote unquote, like a good guy versus being like, what's a a proper steward for the business. So I'm interested in your, your point of view about that. What if people can't make the function and, and it's very specifically how to avoid being performative because being performative, I think is 
one of the most condescending, dismissive things when we're in that space. Yeah. And I think it can be very easy to get sucked into it unintentionally. 100%. I agree with the fail fast um, as long as it's aligned with coaching hard. Because okay. if we're going to, I mean, for me, if we're going to, and I mean, you know, I'm sure you understand this, you run a coaching business. Mm -hmm. um, if we're going to hire on potential because somebody matches with purpose, but they don't have the same function, mm -hmm. then what I would assume is that in, in that situation where I'm involved or I have been involved, it's because we have identified that somebody has the characteristics to make up on the function. So therefore mm -hmm. to learn the function and perform the function. Mm -hmm. So they have human potential. So human potential is, remains potential until we facilitate learning. And that's where coaching comes in. So I think every company needs to look at themselves and say, are we in a position to offer the coaching that's going to allow this person, or not even allow, but is going to enable this person to make up the deficit that they currently sit in? Because then if you are and you, and, and you, you create opportunity for somebody by coaching through whether that's internal external whether that's you know online whether it's reading whether it's actually sitting with somebody and making the time and doing it yourself if that's who you are if you can provide all of that sure fail fast because then what you're saying is you've got the potential you match with the um you match with the purpose <clears throat> but if the company's bringing more than the individual is and the individual isn't then it isn't living up to their side of the bargain this is accountability and this is where i think you know we we struggle with and the people in the workforce that have that sense of entitlement, well, I should be given time. Absolutely, you should be given time if you show that you are worthy of that time. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is that the people who have not been given opportunity before reach out with two hands and not only get to where you need them, but push past it. Mm -hmm. Because what you've done is you've, they've got the potential and now you've given them the environment to succeed in. Mm -hmm. The people who aren't going to succeed don't succeed in the system. So we, but we as companies have to actually realize that. And, and there are stages where you, you are in a great position to do it. There are stages when you are not in a great position to do it. And I think that's our responsibility as leaders, people who are making hiring decisions. Can we facilitate success? I want to hit on that and, and I will use the example that I just used for my own business. And the reason I, I do that, uh, Dan, and you'll know this about me, but just so for people listening is as a coach, you can kind of sometimes position yourself as being this kind of like infallible, like well of wisdom. It's like, no, I screw up. I make like idiot mistakes. Mm -hmm. The difference I, I'd like to think is that I can realize when I made a mistake and then I can hopefully as a coach, I have the skills to help other people avoid the mistakes that I have very often made myself. Yes. So here's one. And what I liked about you is what you said about the coaching hard side where it's like, okay, so I know what the purpose is. We're hiring predominantly for purpose and secondarily for, for function. And ideally you find someone who hits your purpose and can hit the function perfectly. So when it comes to this, like that, you ideally get someone who can fulfill the purpose and can either like totally fulfill the function or pretty close. But that leap of faith that I was talking about, what you just said around coaching hard, it really made me think it's like, probably not probably firmly what was not part of my thinking was that i'm like oh yeah i'll coach but like you know it's like the the cobbler's child that goes with no shoes when i look back at that time of the company it's not like i had time to coach people so that's actually a to to hire for purpose when there's a gap in function 
and the gap you identify the gap is significant means that you have to have a good hard look at yourself and be like do we have the ability to coach so this person actually has a fair shot yes. and i want to be really clear i think that's a really that was a that's a gap that i didn't realize until you just said it and i think that like because i i don't like speaking like hoity-toity like we should do this it's like i want we should do it but let's be yeah. practical about it it's like hire primarily for purpose secondarily for function and if there's a significant gap in function you have to do a true gut check on whether or not you have capacity to coach them or else you're actually are are actually setting that person up for fail likely setting that person up for failure and you may be entering into a performative space yes because you, you, you and i mean look, Oof, i'm like you that when was look- tough for me to admit right there <laughs> my God, yeah, yeah. but but that's part of the whole being human here in the and the reason that I enjoy our conversation so much and the reason that I surround myself with people who are going to challenge me on my thought and are also going to teach me is because I want to be a student. I want to continue to be a student and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that ever changes, like if I ever come out of a conversation with you and I'm not sitting here going, I hadn't looked at it like that, I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. Because that's the whole point of putting ourselves in conversations with people that you know will bring a different element of thought, a different viewpoint um and different experience um i mean i used to work for in and it's so funny because i have i've worked for companies that you know are into the well into the big billions of dollars um some of the best coaching i've ever had was when i ran a ski and snowboard shop mm-hmm. um and the the, the 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 human that i worked for there mark um who would you'd adore because you know he's a massive punk fan full sleeves very similar to you actually um and and loves the human mind like he was continually looking for the opportunity of coaching and one of the things that he taught me was or framed for me was don't ask somebody how your day is going unless you are prepared to be in whatever conversation comes back to you and that's the same with hiring don't hire somebody unless you are entirely comfortable with being in every single situation that comes back at you. Mm. Because we might hire somebody having read a whole bunch of different things from this, from the interview process mm-hmm. and then find out that they're actually just a really good interviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used myself as an example of this. I could probably interview my way into a lot of very different jobs that I would have no business being in. Because I've been brought up and coached in a way that I can come across as highly likable. People enjoy the moment. They leave an interview with me feeling happy. Mm-hmm. But that's just a personality thing. That's psychology. Mm-hmm. That's got nothing to do with my ability to do the job. Mm-hmm. But I can, make, I can help somebody or make somebody feel really, really good coming out of a conversation. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, that's what interviews were. Did they like you coming out of the conversation? Mm-hmm. And so one of the pieces that I've worked very hard on in every company that I've been on is like, how do we objectify that? How do we create a, a measuring stick coming out of that? Uh, you know, at, um, at Lululemon, we talked about this all the time because, I mean, that is a company that really knew what it was that was going to succeed in the world. And that was empowering women and bringing in the best and brightest and giving them opportunity. And they've done a better job of empowering women than I think any company I've ever seen. Mm. Um, and yet we were still, when I was there, having conversations around how do we refine an interview process? And we brought it down to three stages of um, interview for the function of what is that job, mm-hmm. interview for the purpose and see who that, and I'm using sort of the words that we've come to today, but 
um, interview for the purpose and see if they fit the department. And then the third stage was interview for the vision, see if they match it to take the company forwards. I like that. Because otherwise in an interview process, a person tells their story, the same story, multiple times. And if you have one interview or five interviews, if you just have a candidate who tells their story X amount of times, then what have you really achieved? Because at the beginning, they're fresh and they're, or sorry, at the beginning, they're nervous. In the middle, they're excited. And at the end, they're bored because they've told their same story over and over again. Not, not useful, but function, purpose, vision. Now you've got a candidate who three people are going to have a, hey, they touched this for me. And if you add seniority to the person interviewing, you know, the actual line manager, head of department, senior figure within the company, you've got the right person talking to them about the right area. And we saw huge dividends coming out of that. Um, it, it also brings an interesting decision point because uh, if you add that third category in uh, vision, it... Um, it allows you to be like, well, what if someone's more heavily weighted into the, what, like what here, what is the right combination that we'd be willing to live with? And then can we support that person through strong coaching and general practices? Do we have those things? I like that. I really like the idea of vision too. Cause it's like, well, okay. Like we know what this company should be, but what can you bring to the company? What's your yes. vision for this? I, I love that. Yeah. Um, all right, man, I'm, I'm about to take a pretty hard turn. Are you ready for it? Okay. All right. So you've talked a lot about, um, uh, strong women in your life. Yes. Uh, what was your home life like growing up? About everything you could hope for. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny that I say that because I'm, um, my parents are teachers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, summer holidays for us was jumping in the family station wagon, driving down to France, sitting on the ferry for a day to get there and then driving to a campsite, just, just hanging out, being a family. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, it wasn't, I didn't ski when I was a kid because we didn't have the money to do that. Um, you know, now I live just down the road from Whistler and spend every Saturday there. Um, I, we didn't, nothing was extravagant. Um, you know, I rode, it's so funny because there's pictures of me riding, well, ponies, um, but I'd like to say horses because it just sounds cooler um, as a kid. But I got to do it because my mum ran the um, boarding school um, riding club and people would donate these these horses and ponies and a donkey to us um, because they you know we lived in an affluent community but the school was a school for disadvantaged kids or you know troubled kids um, I grew up on a 300 acre um, park which was a boarding school and I had the run of it so there were 250 boys there who every single one of them wanted to play soccer with me whenever I wanted so I would just run around this parkland because there were cadets at every entrance and exit so my parents had this constant, like one, they knew I couldn't get out. Um, and two, um, there was this constant sort of uh, relay back to my parents because there's no cell phones. This is the 1980s. There's this constant relay of information going back to my parents, but I was last seen here playing <laughs> soccer with these people or climbing a tree here. So um, my, my child was amazing. Um, I, I grew up where my parents, uh, all they wanted to do was be parents. So I had the most incredible childhood. I mean, when I started playing, you know, the, the highest level rugby that I was playing, I mean, my mum and dad used to drive me from North Wales into a rugby club called Oral, which was in the northwest of England. It was an hour, hour and a bit each way. Um, and my mum would drive me to training. She'd then sit and do her marking. She would teach us. She'd sit in the car and do her marking while I trained. And then she'd drive me home. And it was all done without any kind of sort of, do you know how lucky you are? 
anyway, they moved to to teach at a private school in Wales mm-hmm. um, because they wanted me to have that kind of education. It was so everything was teed up for uh, for me to be successful, and I'm massively lucky for it. Um, I had a my gran moved in with us, and my mum's mum when we lost my granddad. Um, and so I would spend weekends sitting watching um, rally and touring car racing with my gran and actually having that quality time with her connecting because we lived in the same house. Um, and then I would go fishing with my other grandparents um, and gran would make us breakfast and then granddad and I would stomp off to the beach and come back, this little six-year-old me stomping off to the beach with my fishing uh, rod over my shoulder. And like, it was amazing. Um, so on one side, you've got that. Um on the other side, um, something you said earlier, like I was bullied as a kid. Mm. Um, I spent years um, getting hammered, whether that was physical or verbal or both, mm-hmm. um, because my uh, my dad was a teacher at my school, mm-hmm. and some of the some of the senior guys didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So um, whether it was on a pitch or off a pitch, um, I got beaten up regularly. Um, I got uh, verbally abused and bullied uh, constantly um, and it, it's it, you know that's that experience has stayed me, with me to this day and I think I don't think I know has shaped a lot of the ways that I look at life um, because it was that was the dark side of my childhood mm-hmm. um, because it was a hell of a lot to go through and yet um, I look back on it and I'm like I took a lot of lessons from that well People can have both. And first of all, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Two things can be true. People can have totally privileged upbringings that are like wonderful and amazing. Like, man, you had like ponies. That's sick. Like, I I didn't have any ponies. However, um, I also had like a really privileged upbringing. And you can also grow up in this like hellscape of hopelessness and being bullied and not knowing what to do. Like, I grew up a lot feeling like the system failed me because like I... I grew up going to Catholic school and it was like all about like good and be good. And you know, like, like praise the Lord or whatever it was, but like, like the idea that good things were going to happen. And I always grew up with this sense that somebody was going to come and intervene when like, cause I got like terribly bullied, but when I terribly bullied I mean it's like terribly bullied for like a, a kid who came from a mixed family in Alberta, in Calgary, Alberta in the eighties. So it was like, relatively bad and it lasted for many many years but certainly not as bad as what other people have experienced at all but uh it set me up to feel like the system let me down because when i got into like junior high i was like oh no this isn't going to change like you know like i'm always going to be named a ram i'm gonna people are going to call my parents might call my family terrorists they're going to make fun of like you know my my dad's accent they're going to make fun of my nose like i'm going to get picked on until i until i make myself until I bulletproof myself, which is where a lot of like, I'd say the seeds of kind of being toxically competitive came in. Cause mm-hmm. like I developed a, like, I am just going to outwork everybody. I am going to do the thing that is so good, so undeniable that you will be shut up forever. And it worked very well for me. I went on to do lots of really cool things and enjoyed 0% of them <laughs> until I had a good life reckoning that really like helped center me and like reconnect me with myself and so the reason i'm going down this path is like you can have a a great childhood and then have horrible like just both things can be true or you can just have a totally challenging childhood from a financial standpoint parenting standpoint but also be widely accepted in your neighborhood like there's there's a lot and some people just get none of they don't have any of the the kind of some of the grounding stuff the reason I'm, i'm talking about this is um 
you have been very well built to handle life challenges and recover from them. So when you talk about rugby and blowing out your knee and having to like, uh oh, I thought I was going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. Uh oh, that happened. Now I'm going to do this. How come you're so well built to um, to be able to recover from something that is traumatic? And where you know where I'm heading in a minute. Yeah. Uh, how come you've been able? How come you're so well built? Is there something special about you, or is it about what you've done to get there? So uh, there's two answers to this. Um, a year ago, a year ago, I would have told you that I have found a way to look at anything that's gone like badly for me. I mean, I've broken my back twice. I pulled my pec off my arm, uh, 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 literally pulled the pec tendon off the arm completely. I had to have surgery to put it back on, um, five knee surgeries. Um, and, and I found a way to say that, because once I, once I had disconnected my self-worth and self-esteem from physical achievement, um, and I actually connected it to um, what my actions are on a daily basis, and I actually have it tattooed on my shoulder. In Latin, I have uh, let my actions define me. As a physical manifestation or reminder of, <clears throat> of the ethos that I created um, through injury, that and, and, and where I went from that is like every injury I have, like if I have a friend that blows their knee, talk to me all day because I will turn my negative experience into a positive experience for them because I can now act as that reassuring, look, I've been there. Let's talk about it. And I can help somebody else through my own experience. So that is what equipped me, that total shift of realizing that helping again, and there's so much goes back to coaching for me, but helping somebody achieve, helping somebody surprise themselves and do something. Um, if I can lean into my own experiences to help them do that, then, then everything that I went through was worth it. Mm -hmm. um, you would have said that a year ago. I would have said that a year ago because it, a year ago I thought that I um, was really good at this game. And then, and, and, and so everyone knows, uh, I'm not leading Dan down here. I, I kind of mentioned yeah. that there was some value in us discussing this and, uh, he was game for it. So thank you. Um, so, uh, within this past year, you had the sudden loss of, of your mother. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, to completely expand, I lost my, uh, my grand, uh, I lost my granddad. I lost my dog of, and I don't know why I always qualify how long I had the dog for as if it's a lesser life, but I had my dog of 13 years and then I lost my mum um, in the space of 11 months. Mm -hmm. And, um, I wouldn't say that I'm even close to being recovered from it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people say COVID's been tough, I'm like, yeah, I've watched three funerals on live streams. Um, I haven't been home to process any of the grief that comes with those three losses and had that closure, which um, a funeral is designed to provide. Um, I've, I watched, a, I watched my grand's funeral on my lunch break and that shows how, poorly i i was coping with that situation at the time because um i thought that was acceptable but that was avoidance and I, i'm realizing that and you know i, I mean <laughs> what the, the words that people have used to me and i don't know if this is true and i wouldn't give myself this much credit 
um, is that the amount of grief and the amount of challenges I've been through in the last year break people. Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm fully functioning right now, but I'm certainly not broken. Uh, and I, and I hope I'm, I'm trying to find my way back. Um, but my ability to cope with pressure at the moment is not what it was. My ability to roll with the punches is not what it was. Um, I'm tired. Um, and tired in a way I've never been tired before. Like, (laughs) I once ran 50 miles, took me 14 and a half hours and I finished it and I sat down and had a burger with some friends. Um, and my body was pretty beat up, but I wasn't tired. You know, I was fatigued. I was physically exhausted, but I think I gave up healthy sleep about a year ago. Um, and for me, I'm relearning how to deal with all of this. Um, And that's where I do lean into my career. That's where I do lean into my training. That's where I do lean into the people that I'm surrounded with. Um, Because that's my, that's my coping mechanism. Uh, And I hope there's a, I hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel where you and I sit here again and I say, well, look, I was able to recover from this again (laughs) because, you know, I feel like I had the shit kicked out of me for the last year and a half. Yeah. And I appreciate your willingness to talk about this, man. And I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your losses. Um, and everyone, so you know why we're talking about this. People tend to talk about their suffering as like past tense. It's like, and this thing happened. And, and then I, I did this thing. It's like, Hey man, like this is like a live exercise, you know, like, and for those who, you know, who haven't known Dan previously. So Dan is a very dedicated, uh, athlete, uh, ultra runner, CrossFit, um, very, very physically healthy. Uh, has a very established group of friends, a lot of like long-term deep friendships, uh, very successful in what he does, lives in a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, so you could say on a lot of levels, it's like, yeah, you're well-built for suffering, but when suffering comes, suffering comes. And there's things like not being able to achieve something in your life, like not being able to get that job or get that car or getting fired or having a breakup or whatever. And most people can figure their way through those, but there is some situations and i know many of us have experienced this during the pandemic that knock you down in a way where you have to figure out what you're really made of today not what you're made of traditionally but who are you today and what do you need to do to get through this dan i know you're in a place like that um what are you doing to take care of yourself because you're still leading a rapidly growing organization you are building up a team, you're a professional, you stand on your physical training. So how are you taking care of yourself, man? Well, thank you for asking it like that. And also thank you for such a, um, I, I feel very lucky that that's how you would describe me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it brings to Mark, my, my, you know, my coach, um, you know, he always says, and to use his words, like my life's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I truly believe that. Um, like I am so, so lucky in, in everything that I have and that I do. Um, but, um, yeah, in this, in this, and that's why sometimes I, the first thing I've had to do is I've had to accept that, um, there is a break in this, in this existence and that what I'm going through, um, is real, is big, is shitty, um, and does need dealing with. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, as I say this with all the love in the world, but I'm British. We repress the hell out of our feelings. We're taught, you know, we're taught to do that from day push, one. Push them all. Push them down. <laughs> push them down. Don't talk about it. Um, 
and so you know the first step for me is is being in that and being prepared to to talk about this mm-hmm. um being prepared to accept that i'm not okay um i've i didn't used to cry like i i know you know again this goes back to that um this is toxic this is that toxic you know when people use the term toxic masculinity i believe it's overused but not crying because you're a man is a toxic result of um behaviors and 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 teachings because it's just a healthy i mean tell me if i'm wrong here but um it's a healthy release of stress oh yeah Um, psychologically and physically it has it has somatic and psychological um benefits i um i found myself i got to the end of a um a peloton ride of all things and there are people that know me again i I'm more known for being out powerlifting and squatting 500 pounds than I am for sitting on a Peloton at home. But I got to the end of a Peloton ride through the night where it was a big climb at the end of it. Um, and I haven't actually admitted this, but um, I, I found myself sitting there screaming into my towel mm-hmm. um, because there was so much emotion pouring out of me and it came out physically. The neighbors were out. Thank goodness. Cause they <laughs> would have wondered what was going on. Um, but like that was, and actually I told one person about that, my, my, my very, very good friend, um, Stu, who I run with and I host our podcast with. Um, and he's like, I, and I, I was ashamed. I was genuinely ashamed that I found myself in this position of what I thought was weakness. Cause again, still learning here of literally screaming into a towel. I was like, dude, I lost control. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I do that in the woods all the time. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, I'll run down a, tra- a tra- trail screaming because it's coming out. And I was like, and it was that again. It was that express for him. That's a normal thing. I mean, this guy um, runs ultra marathons, has Crohn's. Um, you know, was in the British Army, has seen things that I couldn't even imagine. Like he's he's somebody I respect in so many ways, um, and, and admire, and I'm inspired by. Um, and he's telling me that's normal. And it's that it's it's being willing to share things and learn from them. Um, I mean. It, as I think only as I've learned throughout my life, I set myself a massive goal. Well, two, actually one, I took on the biggest job of my career, um, which I love. Um, however hard and difficult it is to fit it all in and do it all. And I'll admit, like I sit there on a daily basis thinking, how am I going to do this? But I, I truly believe that's healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, because if I thought I could do it all easily, then ego would be getting in the way of actual achievement. Um, but I also signed up for um, the longest ultra of my life. I'm training for a hundred mile, hmm. which is going to be running for probably 48 hours in Whistler this September um, because I needed a sense of purpose. Um, um, that sounds uh, horrible and uh, good luck. Good luck to you. I, I think that's healthy. Can I, can I tack something in there? Yeah, please. And it, man, you know yourself, you take care of yourself the way that that's right. Um, you know, we use this idea of like toxic positivity and I know I'm saying the word toxic a lot and I, you know, that has its own like level of like, ew, but toxic positivity, like, you know, Instagram life, like people sharing all these slides. It's like, man, listen, I don't, I'm going to, I'll pause. I'll just simply, simply just say this, that, um, suffering is suffering. You got to deal with it. And so I have consistently been a person who's dealt with like my, my challenges, my difficulties by working and working harder, longer, taking on crazy challenges, doing all this kind of stuff. And I can succeed. Like if there's one thing that I know I can do, it's succeed at things. No problem. But what can I do? I can't heal. And I have traditionally had a very hard time healing. But healing doesn't mean that you don't have a scar. 
and uh, psychologically, emotionally, physically, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have scars. And sometimes those things get irritated and they're difficult. So it's not an extinction of pain or an extinction of feeling about it. It's about how manageable that is and how it impacts. And something I always encourage people to think about is don't look for extinction about terrible feelings or about sadness or depression or anxiety. We always want to have a reduction of frequency, duration, and impact. You're going to feel bad about things. You're going to feel pain. You're going to feel insecure. You just want it to happen left, less often, less often. And when it happens, it happens for shorter, shorter and shorter periods of time. And then when it does happen and it happens for a shorter, shorter period of time, it has less of an impact. The only way you get there is by doing the work, going in, coping with things, dealing with it and not quote unquote confronting it. Cause that has that idea that there's a winner or a loser. So it's not a, it's not a confrontation, pain or trauma. It actually should be the most, um, gentle embrace that you can have is that when you're trying to deal with your own pain and suffering and, and treat it like a, treat it like a partner, treat it like a friend and have that discussion. And you can, you do that, I believe by a stand busy. Like, I love that you took on this, this ultra thing. I do a lot of, you know, if I'll do like a, whatever event that I'm doing or write a record or whatever it is, that's part of it. But the other part is really, uh, exploratory, honest, diligent, courageous work, either on your own or with a, a therapist or with some kind of therapeutic group. There's no valor in working until we drop or just working our way through things. That's just a process. Anybody can just like grit their teeth and, and bear it. It's the gritting your teeth and bearing it while solving it, while dealing with it, while handling it. And I, I know that you are doing that. And I know we've had those conversations, but the piece that I want to add for everyone is like, Dan, someone that I like, you know, I'll, I'll speak about you since you're here. Not like, I won't speak about you. Like you're not here. You're someone that I like really admire, respect. I inspired by you. I love you. I care about you. And you're going through a live exercise of suffering right now. And I think there's a lot of value in what you're going to take away from this about how you can coach and inspire other people in the future. I don't know what the answer is, but I know you're going to find it. Thank you. Uh, that means more than anything, I think. And it, and I really mean, I really mean that. Thank you. That's not a British reaction of you say you're fine or you just say thank you. I mean that. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, you used a word at the beginning of the the podcast to describe me and use the word vulnerable and mm. somebody that's comfortable with being vulnerable. Um, it's a learned skill. Mm. And if there's one thing that I have learned, and man, I, I was my time within the right team, like I, I think I've had the right team at multiple times throughout my career, whether that's the universe setting me up or um, whether it's intentional or whether it's just dumb luck. I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to lean on the universe on this one because it would be nice to have some bigger purpose to everything. But when I suffered those losses, I was around people who wanted to be in the conversations with me. And it was a lot for me to open up and be able to say things like I'm having a really tough day mm. or please don't ask me how I'm doing today. Mm. Because I, I said that in multiple one-on-ones with my team during the time, because one-on-ones are my favorite time of the week. Mm. Like actually spending time with my team, helping and developing them. Um, that's my favorite time of the week. That's my happy place when I work. Um, I love being a strategy decisions. I love making big decisions for the company. Like that feeds me. But if, for pure joy, one-on-ones with my team. That's where I live. So to actually turn around in those conversations and, and 
be cognizant enough of where I was to be able to say, please don't ask me how I'm doing today because all that will happen is I will cry. Mm. Was I just feel lucky that I had the people sitting opposite me in those conversations. And um, one of my old team is is now living her dream, uh, working in, in, in London. And we chat on a, a very regular basis and um, she sends me pictures of home and she asks me where my next trip should be. And I've, I've sent her some recommendations of things that I did with my family, my parents, my mum growing up. Um, and she thanked me when she said, look, I, thank you for giving me the privilege of seeing the UK through yours and your mum's experiences and eyes. Mm-hmm. And like, ah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I waterworks that tore me to pieces, but in such a beautiful way, because already I'm using these experiences to help somebody else find joy, find, you know, enjoyment or, or, or something positive. And I think I believe that's where I'll go with this. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, because I struggle to drive to Vancouver, even though I do it twice a week. Because driving to Vancouver was when I would call my mum. And I have to be doing something at a certain point in the road. When I drive past the, the gas station in Squamish, that's always where I'd hit dial because that's where the signal becomes good. For, for Still to this day, I have to be doing something at that point because I'm trying not to think about, man, I miss my mum when I'm just driving to work in the morning. Um, and like, you know, I it's been hard for me because when I coach, so many of my my coaching lessons start with, oh my, well, my mum said this. <laughs> my mum did this. Well, I once told my mum I was bored and she said, are you? And I like, so many of my stories start like that. And I, I've quoted like things about her today. I, you know, I said, I need to be able to talk to my mum on the weekend and know that she'll be proud of what I did. Well, that's present tense. And so I'm not, I'm not in that p- pulling past this and being still still talking about her is my effort to be vulnerable, to acknowledge that like, I'm nowhere near the other side of this, but I I have to remain true because they're still the lessons that will guide me for the rest of my life. And I don't want to stop telling them because it hurts because if other people have something to gain from them, then I believe they're the right lessons to be teaching from. Um, And so that's hard because every single time it puts me in that thought process. So I think, you know, what I want to do is I want to model for people that we don't just lean on the good times. Um, and it is okay to be open and vulnerable and honest and share like actually from within, because that way we can be the same human at work, the same human in our friendships, the same human in training, like that way we can be our true selves all the time because then we can actually be consistent and then people will benefit from anything that we share. Because I don't have the emotional energy to do different. (laughs) I don't think many people do. (laughs) Uh, That's that's uh, that's really uh, very powerful, man. Thank you for sharing all that. All right, so as we're closing off, I got three questions for you, man. They're they're toughies. They're going to be the toughest ones of of the whole hour. You thought you thought I was taking it. uh, I was being hard, but wait till you wait to get ready for this. Favorite punk band. So you've listened to the podcast. That's not what I'm going to ask you, actually. I'm going to ask you something harder than that. Okay. Um, hold on. Could you answer that, please? Thank you. All right. I hope you're ready for this, man. Top three of all time rugby players. Go. Oh. Yeah, you thought, you thought I was playing, man. I'm not playing. That is a toughie. Why rugby players? Because you love rugby. Rugby, rugby is your punk. 
Can I change the question? Yeah. yeah. Can we go with can we go with influential sports people? Beautiful. Okay. Number one currently, Ross Edgley. Okay. Who's that? He is a he's the most unbelievable guy. He he went to my I use that word unbelievable again. I want it out of my vocabulary because nothing's unbelievable if somebody's doing something incredible. Okay. Um he swam around Great Britain. The whole okay. way around. That's Took him five, that's a swim, man. That's, <laughs> that's a long a, swim. That's a, five months, um, phasic sleeping. He would swim for six hours and sleep for six hours. Well, eat and sleep for six hours and swim again. He was swimming on the tides. Like it was unbelievable. No, thank you. So uh, good for him, but no, thank you. Okay. The reason that I love this guy is yeah. because he did it with a smile on his face. And he actually talks about the fact you can't swim angry for five months. Mm-hmm. And that's my philosophy on life. Like there's certain moments I'll get under a heavy lift and I will bring every ounce of whatever anger or pain or anguish is in there. But that's like a, that's three seconds. If I want to go and run for 14 hours or 48 hours, I got to be in a good place because when the suffering kicks in, I need to, I need to want it. I don't need to be running away from something. I need to be running towards something. And that's just a life ethos for me. So number one, uh, and he's a sports person most people will never heard of. <laughs> um, uh, Jonathan Edwards. What did, what, did, what did Jonathan Edwards do? Run around the sun? Nope. Oh, no, okay. World, okay. World, record tri- uh, world record triple jumper. Um, okay. okay. And he, he was light years ahead of his time. I think he still holds the world record. He set the world record in 1995. I saw his last world championships live in Paris. Um, and he was the most unlikely guy because he was just this skinny smiley happy um if you saw him on the street you wouldn't have a clue who he was um and he was the best in the world because he was obsessive and he pushed and he drove and he had the steel behind him that other people wouldn't comprehend how to even like fathom what it was let alone get there so just massive inspiration um and then johnny wilkinson he was the World Cup winning fly half for England. Um, and he was, he, he didn't need the limelight. Mm-hmm. If he had pushed, um, he could have been the most famous British rugby player of all time, possibly the most famous, most lucrative um, athlete, you know, it, it, coming, out of the, coming out of the sport of rugby. Mm-hmm. But all he cared about was playing rugby. All he cared about was his team winning. And that to me is the virtuosity of character which is so much more appealing to me than somebody who is in it for the accolades. He was in it for the intrinsic rewards, the feelings of it. After a game, um, everybody else is drinking, spraying champagne. He won the World Cup and he didn't drink because he said, no, I don't drink. That's who I am. This is something I did. And so he embodied in him um, the things that I strive for in life of just amazing things should happen for us as teams I don't need you to see me do it. Heck yeah. All right. Ready for the second question? Yes. You cannot back out of this. You cannot change this question. This one I'm going to pin you to. Okay. We're talking about essential leadership skills now. Essential. What's one thing that you know you are actually genuinely good at? It doesn't mean you can't get better at, but what is one thing as a leader you are genuinely good at? And what is one thing as a leader you know you are genuinely challenged by and you're you're really trying to get better at? These are the tough questions. Um, I'm good at listening to my team. Mm-hmm. 
into listening to people and to understanding people. Like, I, I think that is the greatest thing that I do, um, is that I understand the people that I work with. Um, I, I said this to one of my team the other day, and I asked her to hold me accountable. I said to Jess, I need you to tell me when I am trying to get too much out of too little. Mm. I've grown up in businesses that didn't spend. And so for me, I will always try and find a way to do something on the least budget, um, using the most creative methods. And I need to get better at knowing this is when we spend the money. This is when we invest. Because the second can massively um, detrimentally affect the first. Absolutely. Great answers. Great answers. All right. Third one. This, this one's actually the easiest of the three. All right. So where can people find you and anything that you want to endorse, hype up, share about that you'd like people to look up? Oh, amazing. Thank you. Um, well, Wild Pack, Wild Pack Beverage. Um, I am so passionate about what this business is doing. We're attracting some of the most incredible talent to disrupt an industry and do it all from the perspective of building our customers' businesses. Mm-hmm. And that for me is that's, that's the joy in life. Um, we're also doing it from the perspective that I joined because Mitch, our CEO, told me that his vision in life is social impact through building a billion dollar business and then giving a whole bunch of it away. So it's, it's purpose-driven um, in an industry that needs reform and we can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wildpat Beverage, I'm the VP of people there and you know we're looking for top talent all the time. So if you want to come and join us, I would love to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, on a human note, because again, I don't disconnect the two, um, Instagram um, handles Walesy, mm-hmm. uh, that's W-A-L-E-S, triple Y. Um, it's, I'd like to think, and I hope it is a bit raw, um, that it's not a highlight reel. Um, it does feature a lot of what I'm passionate about and why I'm about to say it. Like I'm running a hundred miles and I'm going to do it to raise money for special Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, I have personally seen the effects of special, um, Olympics. I have, um, nephews who benefit from this sort of thing. Um, I want to create awareness and education and drive behind um, supporting people with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm going to run for 48 hours. I'm going to talk all about it on that Instagram page and uh, hopefully raise a bunch of money. Um, And then the final one, the passion project is Beyond the 40. Mm -hmm. Um, It's mine and my very good friend, um, Stu Wilkinson's podcast, where we talk about uh, and meet with people who do incredible things outside of a very successful professional life. Uh, so for instance, uh, we interviewed my, my, my good friend and coach Mark who rode the Baja 1000 on a dirt bike as a solo mission whilst also running a successful business, um, leading an outside business and also having a healthy marriage. And a lot of people can learn a lot of lessons from the people I get to surround myself with every day. So thank you for the, the three shout outs there. Heck yeah. Awesome. All right. Any last words before we close off? Just thank you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always incredible to speak to you. And I'm always amazed by where the conversation goes in such a positive way. Um, I love this platform that you're doing and created here. Like, you know, when, whether I was, as I mentioned to you, I listened to your um, podcast with Carrie Fraser recently and it got me fired up because she's so intelligent, so um, introspective, so aware uh, and having give, you giving the likes of myself and there were all other listeners access to incredible minds like hers and yours um, is, is such a benefit to us all and whether it's the business community or in our personal lives so keep doing what you do man I love it I right, thanks so much and shout out to Carrie Fraser you're the best shout out to Karis you're yes. awesome 
Yes. Um, listen, Dan, this was great, man. Uh, you know, I knew this was going to be a great, but also a bit of a tough conversation for you because you're you're that guy. You're willing to really go there. And there were moments for me where I was like, damn, I like, am I going to cry? Like, this is heavy. <laughs> so really, like, really appreciate it. And I hope everyone got out of it uh, as much as I did. Um, so everyone, I'll see you in the outro. And Spencer, drop the beat. What is that?